to The New Disruptors, a podcast that tastes better with a little salt and vinegar. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org for past episodes, show notes, and for feedback. Marisa McClellan puts stuff in jars, and it's delicious. Her Food in Jars blog went from a side venture she was interested in to her main hub as a food writer. She writes for Food Network, Table Matters, and Savour. Her first book is Food in Jars, Preserving in Small Batches Year-Round, and she's in the middle of writing her second book, Preserving by the Pints, about even smaller batch preservation. You want to pickle something? She's your woman. Welcome to the podcast, Marisa. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I think we have never had anyone on to talk about food before, which is odd given that that is one of the primary occupations of many people and part of our lives. <laughs> and, uh, that is kind of crazy. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the preservation thing, I think is a, it's a wonderful, uh, I mean, preservation of preservation is fascinating. My wife took a, a preservation, a canning class here a few years ago, and it's stunning to me. It's kind of like the return of chickens. Like suddenly, <laughs> maybe the economic downturn a few years ago made people feel like we were way too reliant. But you must be in the middle of this thing because you, you kind of started down this path a few years ago when this is going yeah. on. How did you get get sucked into vacuum sealing things inside of other things? <laughs> Well, so I started the blog Food and Jars uh, uh, almost five years ago now. I started it in response to ending another job. I had been the editor, the lead blogger at Slash Food, which was AOL's old food blog. It's now sort of become part of the whole Huffington Post world. But um, in the back in the day, it was a fairly popular, well-read food blog and uh, sort of accidentally started writing for it and I was the most engaged person on the site and they were like, hey, do you want to edit this thing? And I said yes. And so I worked there for almost two years. But then as so often happens, they were restructuring and I live in Philadelphia and they made this decision that the editor of Slash Food needed to be based in New York and um, needed to be able to come into the office. And at the time I had a full-time job. So I was doing this while um, working a full-time day job oh and, and couldn't just pick up and leave. And so decided that I would give it up and start my own food blog so that I could stay engaged in sort of the food blog community because it was a really active collection of people. It was a way I had made a number of friends and I wanted to stay in the world. But I, I didn't expect that it was going to turn into anything beyond sort of my own personal food blog. But then it started to explode. What happened was... I started it in February of 2009, and at that point, nobody was really talking about canning online. And so I became one of the first ones into the space without really intending to. It wasn't as if I was like, okay, I'm, you know, there's space here and I'm going to make my mark. I was just aware that there was, you know, the availability of a niche. And so I decided to occupy that niche, not, you know, again, not thinking it was going to turn into a career, just this is a good place for me to write and explore. And then like three months later, canning exploded. <laughs> and That's not good with canning though. That means you didn't can it right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> jars weren't exploding, but uh, the interest sorry. in canning was totally exploding. And so there I was, one of the few people writing about it online and doing it in a way that was sort of approachable and without a lot of fear mongering. And it just kind of kept growing because of that. It's really – it's a, an amazing thing. It happened here in Seattle too, I think a little bit later. But what do we have? C Canvolution? Is that our group? Yeah. And I was I was involved with that. That first summer, um, summer of 2009, it was 
three weeks before I got married, there was a big like can it forward or uh, canvolution day. And so I flew out to Seattle and hooked up with all the canning folks and taught a class and did a day long canning party with a bunch of people. So I was there. That was, it was awesome. It was really fun. But yeah, so like it was Kim O'Donnell who sort of brought everybody together for that. And it was really fun. It was great. Well, I wonder that's that that we're and we're talking about timing, and I was sort of kidding about economic collapse, but I guess not really. Is is uh, I felt like this happened while my wife took the class around that same time. It felt like uh, canning and preserving and all these things. Like there's so many. I want you to describe all these different methods actually, because I never get them entirely right. But there's a lot of ways that feel like they're sort of old fashioned. On the other hand, we buy commercially a lot of this stuff every day, but there was this mismatch. Like it seemed impossible and dangerous for normal people to, and I don't know, I mean, I know this isn't true in the Midwest. I know there's people who've been canning for generations, but maybe it's the growth of commercial food. Maybe it's our fear of food safety, but it seemed to us just in our household, even like, can we do this without you know causing botulism and whatever? Did, did something snap? I mean, you were right there when this is going on. What changed in opinions that led people to – or was it a little bit of not economic desperation? We weren't suddenly going to can everything, you know, raise victory gardens and live off it. But what do you remember happening then that helped to change perception about this? Well, there was a lot going on. It was, so I, I kind of trace it back to four or five things that happened all at the same time or sort of coalesced all at the same time that made canning so popular. Um, there was the economy where, you know, people suddenly life was a lot more uncertain for a lot of folks and they didn't necessarily know where, you know, sometimes their next meal was going to come. And mm-hmm. so they turned to canning, you know, gardening, canning, gleaning, you know, preserving when things were cheap um, so that they could eat them when days were a little bit more uncertain. So that all happened. There was also the rise in interest of local food. And so if you are someone who lives in a place where you can't get strawberries year round locally, you, if you want to eat strawberries in January, you have to learn to can. And so as the um, interest in local food grew, the canning movement really picked up steam. There was also, you know, a lot more awareness around organics and chemicals. And so if you were a parent concerned about what your kid was eating and you wanted to ensure that it was all organic, in order to do that affordably, you know, if you buy during the season, I always think of it as like, you know, canning is much like buying low and selling high. You know, you buy when things are cheap and can them and eat them when they're expensive. And so things like peaches, <laughs> strawberries, if you want to eat those fruits when, you know, you buy them when they're cheap and you can them and you, that way you can get inexpensive organic fruits and vegetables and eat them when they're not cheap. Um, there was also a uh, you know, an increased awareness over issues around the lining of cans that we buy in the grocery store. Oh, yeah. You know, so that came along right around the same time. So between the economy, the local um, food movement, or, you know, organics, BPA issues. And then I also kind of chalk it up to this sort of ineffable thing where we suddenly looked around and as people, we don't really make much anymore. You know, you buy your clothes, you buy your furniture, often you buy pre-made meals at the grocery store. And so we lost sort of a connection with making things. And so the whole rise of the DIY movement has been happening over the last, you know, like five, five, six years as well. And so canning is a natural offshoot of that DIY movement where people are like, I want to make something. I want to get my hands on it. I want to feel this connection with something that I engage with every day. And food and canning is a really good way to have that sense of satisfaction and engagement with what you eat. 
God, that's so fantastic that all those trends happened at once. And then, the, and, yeah. then, and then, of course, and then the economic collapse at the same time. So people did wonder, as you say, where's the next meal going to come from? So even if yeah. you're living a comfortable middle-class life and you know where the next meal is going to come from, suddenly it sounds attractive to have 1920s or you know 1890s skills on uh, on top. You know, as I say in every podcast, I was trained as a typesetter. So you know, if we go back to the 1890s, I'm fine. I could I could typeset. I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be a need for that. Mm-hmm. But these these basic skills, you know, you talk to organic farmers. There's a, a meat CSA that my wife and I were part of a few years ago, and it, the, these folks up in northern uh, northern Washington, they were not raising organically because organic certification was too complicated at that point. They were raising naturally and was disclosing everything. But their thing was, and this is also um, paralleled in uh, the book, uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma that Michael Pollan wrote, uh, where he talked about a farm. Um, it's one of the sections of the book he wrote too. Mm-hmm. These guys in Northern Washington said, we had to go back to 1930s textbooks to find out how to raise meat the way we wanted to before all the antibiotics and everything were added. And I, I expect that's probably the same in the area that you've now become well known for is that yeah. I imagine you have to do a lot of research to recover information coupled with modern food safety principles and tools that are available. Is that Do you go into libraries and are pulling out old canning books to just see what people used to do? Well, I do to a certain degree. And I mean, I have a fairly extensive collection of vintage canning books. Mm. But actually, for as much as canning went away, it never disappeared completely. And so there was always a community of people who were canning. And so actually, um, there there's a thing called the National Center for Home Food Preservation. It's based out of the University of Georgia. And unfortunately, they have lost a lot of their funding and Uh. so aren't producing much uh, useful information anymore, but have a really deep, wonderful website. And so have done a great deal of work in ensuring that canning recipes and the amount of time that you process your jars, that everything is highly researched and so that you're going to have the safest product available. So actually, in most cases, it's often better not to follow the vintage advice and use the um, information that is most up to date because you're going to have the safest, most reliable outcome that way. Oh, that's interesting. My wife told me after uh, she took one of the classes that there had been a change. They used to advise one thing. I can't remember what the detail was, but that they'd found that it was more reliable to do something else. They're like, if your mother taught you or grandmother taught you how to can, you have to convince them this is no longer the right way to do it because they've tested it in the lab and they know this is true. Yeah. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the extension offices either. I forget about that. I mean, that's this great outgrowth of, I guess, the Dust Bowl era, really, wasn't it? That you have all these, uh, we have in Washington State, and that's the class that my wife took, I think was partly put together by extension is that that was meant for, you know, rural life. And, but the urban part of extension programs are still terrific. And of course they've lost a lot of funding as well, but they're teaching urbanites about how to do, I mean, that's, that's been the modern part is how do you spread this knowledge in an environment when we're not living on the land, but we have the ability to grow food or buy farmer's market food, buy fresh things. Yeah. Uh, do, is that, do you find that – I don't know in Philadelphia. I mean I know you're in a, in a city but is extension important back east or is that is that uh, decline in importance with the kind of funding side of things? Um, we have extension in Pennsylvania but it is uh, mostly based in the rural part of the state. And so I live in Philadelphia, so there's not a lot out this way. So I have to drive out to like Lancaster County, mm. which is you know famous for, for the Amish community. And so we'll often have – 
you know, we'll often drive out that way. Like when I learned to pressure can, I drove out, it's like an hour and 15, an hour and a half away from here and took classes there. And so there is still that community. But so there's this program in canning called, you know, this, that the state extension services often run called the Master Food Preserver Course. Mm-hmm. And they don't run it in Pennsylvania anymore. Oh, and no. it's, it's offered state by state. Yeah. And so there's, they're not training anybody new to teach these courses at the extension services. And so everybody who teaches them is like between 65 and 90. And so as there, you know, there, there's just no young blood coming into that community. And so it's really unfortunate. And I, you know, it's good for me in the sense that I get a lot of people coming to my classes because of that. But it would be nice if they could really build up their worlds who had to be more inclusive for everybody. That's a real shame. And we've seen that here, as I was saying to the, the cuts, uh, you know, master gardeners, master preservers, lots of programs that, that benefit everybody in the state, not just farmers. And, and when farmers are benefited, everyone in the state benefits economically and from the quality of food too. It's, that's, that's sort of horrible too, that the knowledge was preserved for all these decades. And now's the point at which you lose that kind of class. I would love to know about where did you where did you get the training that you need? Because I know it's not like um, getting a master's of science degree to do canning, but you do have to, it seems like, develop a rigorous approach. And I know there's some kinds of preservation that is you have to be more careful about than others. So where did you go? Did you have to go to many different courses to get the kind of knowledge that, that you felt comfortable with? Well, um, so I kind of took a multi-pronged approach to this. I took some classes through the uh, Lancaster County Extension Service. I did, that's where I learned to pressure can. I did a lot of research. I had grown up canning, so I knew I knew how to do it. Mm. Um, I grew growing up in Oregon. You know, we have blackberries and apple trees, and they're just everywhere. Um, so my mom, we you know we would pick wild blackberries every summer and make jam. And so I grew up knowing how to can, and. Um, then as I started doing it and, you know, started the blog, people would ask me questions and I wouldn't know the answer. And so I wanted to give people the best information possible. So I would read everything I could get my hands on. You know, it made me think a lot of, in the 70s, my dad, he taught videotape editing courses in Chicago. Mm. And at that time, he used to joke that he was only ever one class session ahead of his students. (laughs) And I felt much like that for the first year that I was, you know, writing the blog and then teaching classes was that I was only ever one step ahead of everybody else. But it was a vital step. Like I knew what I was talking about. But, you know, I've gotten to the point now where there is nearly no canning question you can ask me that can stump me. But um, back in the day, I had a lot of I had to say a lot of times, um, you know, I don't know the answer for that. Let me I'll look it up and get back to you. But when you're out there on the Internet, people ask you questions and you have the time to uh, find the answers. And, you know, sometimes the answer is just not out there and you have to say you can't do that. And that that has to be OK, too. I, uh, I would love it if you would tell me about because there are so many kinds of things. You know, what are the different ways you can preserve food? I, I mean, I know that some involve, you know, pickling. there's pickling and canning and there's other kinds of preservation. What's the distinction between these kind of, you know, uh, the different kinds of things you can you can put away. Yeah. Okay. So at the very basic core of things, when it comes to canning, you have two ways of canning. You can either process something in a boiling water bath canner or you can process something in a pressure canner. 
you do boiling water bath canning for high acid foods. So we're talking about jams and pickles, uh, tomato products, chutneys, things like that. Although with tomatoes and some other fruits that are sort of at the edge of the acceptable pH, you often have to add either lemon juice or citric acid to make sure that you have enough acid in the jar to ensure a safe environment. And if you can't ensure a safe environment, then you have to move over to the pressure canning side of the world. And what pressure canning does is it takes uh, – pressure canner allows you to increase the temperature because, huh. you know, at sea level – on this planet, water boils at 212 degrees. And without additional pressure, you're never going to get any hotter than 212 degrees. And so the reason that you'll need a pressure canner for these low acid foods is that it's all about botulism. Mm -hmm. Botulism spores can germinate and become the botulism toxin if they are in low acid oxygen-free environments. And so... Um, that is essentially the inside of a jar if you haven't processed it in a pressure canner because what a pressure canner does is allows you to raise the temperature to the point where you can actually kill those botulism spores because they are not killed at the boiling point. It takes temperatures of around 235 to 240 degrees to kill them. And so by processing something in a pressure canner, you elevate the temperature beyond the boiling point of water. That is a beautiful explanation. I now under I understand that in a way I didn't before because I knew – I mean that's the advantage of uh, – we use a pressure cooker all the time. My wife loves pressure cooking. Yeah. And, and that was part of the issue is you don't destroy the food in the way you do if you – you can heat something up really hot, but there's sort of the difference between pure heat and pressure, which I know there's a, a function that relates pressure and heat, but using the pressure cooker gets you – the food often comes out tasting better, but you've done the right thing and you've gotten it to the right temperature. It's safe or it's completely cooked. And exactly. I, did, I didn't realize that was the issue. So, but, uh, okay. So that's the – but now there's – now, there's sealed cans. There's like aluminum cans or tin cans or whatever you can buy and there's jars. Is there a fundamental difference between those two kinds of things or is it just a different uh, outcome of like what, what it comes in? When you pressure can something at home, you're doing it in a jar. But if you buy something in the grocery store that has been – that is a low acid product, for instance, like tuna fish or something, the processing has been the same and that they were both processed under pressure to elevate that temperature. Is that, is that what you were asking? Yeah. So it's, yeah. so it's essentially it's both canning. In one case, it's a jar. In another case, it could be a literal can or it could be a mm -hmm. glass jar. But it's the same – it's the same process gets you that outcome. I mean it gets yeah. you just a different packaging. It's funny because, you know, as somebody – I'm not – obviously not informed, but I'm a, I'm a user of all these things. And as you talk about it, I'm like, oh my god, I forget about – you know, if I'm not buying something fresh, everything I'm buying has been preserved, right? In some yeah. fashion. So, and I'm sorry, I interrupted you. The thing. So, there's, there's, that's the, that's the bottom. And there are other, there's other ways of preserving too that doesn't involve, that don't involve the boiling or pressure. Am yeah. I right? So then there's, you know, things like drying, dehydrating. You can always freeze. Um, you can salt pack or salt cure. Mm. So like um, the, I have a recipe in the upcoming cookbook for salt preserved herbs, and essentially you chop up a bunch of herbs when they're fresh, toss them with salt, and they do need to be in cold storage. So you put them in the refrigerator. But it's amazing how salt will preserve fresh herbs for months like that. And, you know, these are techniques that people used before canning was an option. And so, um, you know, you can salt cure, salt pack. Sugar is also a preservative. So if, you know, like that's the reason that, you know, we can make things with lower amounts of sugar now, but back in the day, jams were often one part fruit and one part sugar because that was, you were relying on the preservative power of the sugar in order to keep that fruit good. And then, you know, there's also lacto-fermentation, which is mm. sort of the oldest style of um, food preservation. Every culture has some 
food tradition in which they are using beneficial bacteria to transform the food in some way and make it last longer. So, you know, that's... Yeah, it's like the horseman who would take the, uh, like the stomach of a cow and you'd ride it with it and the horse with the milk in it and exactly. the, would churn it and then you'd have cure or something like that as the outcome. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, that's yogurt, that's cheese, that's beer, you know, bread, sourdough, that's all, those are all fermented things. And those are all the point of them is to take something that is fairly unstable, sort of fragile and make it last longer. And often transform the nutritional value and the flavor in the process. It's, I feel like you've just peeled back the label for me about like all this stuff. I don't think I ever had a comprehensive understanding of that category of thing. Oh, where, so where does pickling fit in there? You don't have to you, – you can pickle, but you don't have to can it if it's pickled. You can just pickle it and preserve it as well. Yeah, so pickling – there are a couple different sort of methods of pickling. Lacto-fermentation is often seen as a form of pickling mm. if you're doing, you know, like – a deli pickle, like a cucumber pickle from, you know, a deli, that is often a fermented pickle. And so that is pickles that were submerged in a saltwater brine with some spices and let to sit. And the salt encourages the growth of the lactobacillus bacteria, which then creates an acidic environment. So that's one style of pickling. And then the other is simply submerging something in vinegar. And often vinegars are a, you know, they are the uh, result of a fermentation process. So like apple cider vinegar, you, you let apple juice turn into wine and, you know, or, you know, boozy apple cider. And then it's, <laughs> then eventually it becomes vinegar. And then you use that to suspend your vegetables or fruit. And so that creates that acidic environment, which then also inhibits the growth of the botulism spores and creates a safe product. So you talk about lacto-fermentation, but fermentation itself is a, it's sort of a different category, right? You make, uh, this is my favorite fact from from the Botany of Desire, another Michael Pollan book, the thing that I didn't know, you know, they lie to us as kids. They're lying to my children less than they lied to us as children about history, I think, like more about Christopher Columbus's actual behavior and so forth. But the Johnny <laughs> Appleseed thing, I mean, anyone who's yeah. read Botany of Desire, you know this. And I've read more since then because it's so amazing. But he wasn't he wasn't planting apples out of the goodness of his heart. He was, a, as, as you know, he was a, an orchardist. He planted orchards. Yeah. And then people wanted apples for two reasons. They wanted them for Applejack because that was safe to drink. Mm -hmm. You could, and uh, so the the liquor was, and even if it was didn't have to be high alcohol, it just was safe to drink when water was not typically necessarily safe on the frontier, so called frontier. Yeah. And the other, of course, was to find because apples are um, what's the, you know the word I'm sure heterozygous is that the right word heterozygous? It's the every apple tree produces a different apple if you grow it from seed, and you yes. could find some. Most apples were spitters, but you could turn them into applesauce. You could use sweetener. You could turn them to Applejack, to all these things to make them safe and preserve them. Yeah. I mean, I know liquor is not technically preservation, but it has some of that function. It's well, it, it is. And it's also a medium for preservation too. And so you can use, you can preserve food in liquor. So then, then oh, it transforms mm. into something as well that's useful. I like that and, too. But so the but the outcome is that some people you'd grow like all the apples that we like that are monocultures, like red or gold delicious, red delicious, all these things, John of Gold. Somebody reached down to an apple tree that grew from seed. And they're like, hey, this tastes good. They sent saplings off to companies that would then pay them money, and they would grow them in you know the now the billions. And uh, that whole the whole apple culture is is fascinating. But I love the insight it gives you into how people live when you're like thinking about. I, we you know we read the uh, little house in the prairie and the um, little was a little farm in the big woods with the little house in the big woods yeah, the, little house, the, the big Almanzo woods. the, uh, the her husband uh, Laura Ingalls mm -hmm. Wilder's husband uh, Almanzo and their corn there was a, a winter when uh, the frost came and they had to go out and put out with the smuts or something they had to put out 
small uh, yeah, uh, smudge, smudge pots. pots. Yeah. And they're talking about – in the book, he's like – if the if we couldn't preserve enough of the corn, I mean, this is third person. You know, they could have actually starved. They had neighbors everywhere. They had a little money, but just being able to preserve the corn, even in upstate New York, even in you know the sort of mid eighteen hundreds, would have meant the difference between life and death. And so, yeah. when we talk about preservation, we're so lucky to not, for most of us, to not require it. But how does most of the? I'm, I'm sure you know some of the answer. To this is how does most of the rest of the world? Live. How important is preservation outside of sort of our very you know middle class or developed economies? Well, it has become less important over time as the you know commercial food production has grown, but you know it's still deeply important to a lot of cultures. You know, as you think about cultures that dry things and salt things and pickle things, and yeah, I mean it's it's still if you if you don't have a reliable commercial food system. And you are responsible for making sure that you don't starve. You you preserve. Mm-hmm. I just keep coming back to the the like the the voluntary or the the non critical aspect of it, but that people are reaching out to this. And you said before we were talking earlier that it comes up from we've been sort of trained to not make things, and there's been this big resurgence. And part of this podcast has been talking to people about these various kinds of things, including the maker movement for sort of products and handmade things and what, you know, this space is so right for that because you get to eat the results. There's this incredible benefit. The most, as you're describing all these different methods of preserving things, I'm like, this is all some of the most delicious food. Absolutely. So it's a benefit, you know, it's a benefit in so many ways. You get to do it, you get your hands on it. And, you know, and I, I do think that that is another big part of why it has become such a popular thing is that it tastes good. You know, it, you know, it's not just that the economy has been bad and, uh, you know, that people want to make things and that they want to avoid chemicals. It also tastes better than most of the things you can get at the grocery store. You know, it's like if you're used to eating jam that's made with high fructose corn syrup, suddenly going to something that's made sweetened with like organic sugar or honey, you look at it and think, how did I ever eat the other stuff? It's it's practice and it's what's cheap. I mean, a lot of food has been cheap because it was artificially subsidized. And someday the corn subsidies will end. We're starting to see some of that breaking apart in Congress as even uh, Republicans are questioning whether we should be subsidizing the way we are. And so if corn subsidies reduced or ended, if we switch to a more ethanol-based economy, which is starting to, you know, like Brazil has done that, that could actually change the economics of using corn as a sweetener. Yeah. And then, you know, then food becomes more expensive. It becomes less sweet. We switch to sugars or, you know, beet sugars even and all that kind of stuff. And we go back to the, the sort of the pre-high fructose days. Yeah. It's a dream, at least. Uh, so now you've <laughs> taken now. So all right. So you have this now. You are the person. You know, actually, I was. I, f- I forgot to mention when we were talking about Canvolution in Seattle. I realized there's an article that just came out. I think it was three days ago. Uh, as we taped it, uh, as we taped this in the Seattle Times, recalling the Canvolution thing and calling you out by name because you're yeah. kind of you're kind of the person now. Like, be search for preservation, search for food. You've done the thing that so many people hope to do as a blogger, you know, starting with a blog. And I did this with Wi-Fi completely accidentally uh, over 10 years ago. As I was interested in it. I started writing about it. I became for a while the go-to Wi-Fi person and it wasn't a plan. But man, did I follow that when that started to happen. So there was a point. You started this blog now almost, you know, five years ago. Yeah. And you could see this happening, obviously, because you're getting more traffic, more people. How did you follow that thread as people started to say, Marisa is that food in jars person? What did you, what did you do to make that become your 
or, or to allow that to become your identity? Well, um, I try to be everywhere, <laughs> which I know sounds a little bit crazy. And as life has gotten busier, it's not as possible. But, you know, I have done a lot with, you know, freelancing and guest posts. And so, you know, anytime anyone asks me to spend a week at their site writing about canning, I do. And so, you know, often in the summertime, everywhere you turn, someone is talking about canning. Mm -hmm. And I am part of that conversation. <laughs> I, you know, I was really active about trying to engage the community too. I am, um, I kill myself answering emails. Mm -hmm. I make sure that even if it takes me a month and hopefully it doesn't, but sometimes it does when I'm really, you know, slammed that I respond to every email anybody ever asks me. And so, you know, if someone has, you know, oftentimes you run into people who say, oh, you know, I love food and jars because Marisa always gets back to me. And so that has been a big part of it too, is really being dedicated to not just sort of sitting on, um, up on a chair, you know, on my throne above everybody and like, yes, I'm the canning person, but being as accessible as I possibly can be. And, you know, ensuring that when people have questions that I answer, or if I can't give them an answer that I point them in the direction of information that will hopefully answer their question. So that's been a big part of sort of trying to expand this and become, you know, when you think of canning, you think of me. I didn't always do it with that kind of intention. It just simply was a commitment to being part of a community and wanting, I know that people always talk about communities and like, that's, that's a kind of a, a trite thing to say, but I really believe it. I really am committed to the idea of not just being someone who's writing about something, but doing it in response to people. So, you know, I have over the years run different features on my blog where I, you know, answer questions. I let people guest post on the site in a way that makes them feel like they're adding value and participating and not just like running guest posts when I go on vacation or something like that. You know, I link to other people's work. I have for a long time had a Flickr group where people could post pictures of their canning. And then once a week I would post, you know, pic the pictures that they had shared in order to get more so that it wasn't just my stuff on the site. So I have really worked hard to kind of include include the world in food and jars. It's hard though. I mean, it, I've turned into the person who is waking up at 6.30 because I need to include more workable hours in my day. Oh my gosh. And I'm doing this about canning, <laughs> which might seem a little crazy. Um, and I'm so busy during canning season, you know, writing and talking to people and teaching classes that I don't always have time anymore to can. Which seems a little crazy. It's a little bit insane. The truth um, comes out. No, but I know. That, but that's the thing. The thing you love. The, the more expert you come in, at you but you teach. You're, you're spreading the knowledge. You're teaching other people to do it. But yeah, it's uh, that's that's a very funny problem. But that's you know, and it's very typical too. It's like, you know, you don't have a staff is the thing. A lot of times, people yeah. their companies get big and they hire other people to do stuff, and then they never wind up doing anything again. But it's it's you. And uh, and you're tied up. I, I should ask you about the classes too because this is the center of what you're doing and you figured out a way to make a living with all of these different components. So you do the freelance writing, which I talked about back in the introduction. Yeah. You've got your own site and you have – I noticed um, you know, you've always uh, – I shouldn't say always, but for a while you've had um, sponsors or advertisers and you've sometimes done promotions too. Is that a significant part of what you're doing on the blog or is that just kind of a – is that a, a side piece as one element in how you how you pull it all together? 
Well, I, I look at sort of making a living through all of this as sort of the more revenue outlets, the better. Mm-hmm. And so I have, I, I just relaunched the site in July. And as I did that, I made more space for sponsors because I have long worked with brands and I've often, you know, for about the past year, I've done a weekly giveaway and those giveaways, I don't charge for inclusion in those spots. You know, often I will ask people to send me what I'm giving away so that I can have some firsthand experience with it and um, take pictures of it. But there's there's not really a pay for play system. And then it's like you have, you know, I charge $500 to do a giveaway. That's not how it's worked for me. But I do have some sponsors who are in that upper right hand corner, top corner of the site, because I really value them. And they are brands that I've worked with. Um, and they're people who are um, have some sort of relationship with this. So like um, one of the sponsors makes a topper for jars that converts a jar into a travel mug, which I think is kind of an awesome product. <laughs> and then another, another, the other sponsor is a jar distributor. And then I just recently had, had added my third sort of individual sponsor that I'm working with. And it's just a woman who offers canning classes in the Atlanta area. And so mm-hmm. she's trying to reach out to the same community of people I am. And then, you know, I have some ad networks, but so I have, you know, the individual sponsors, I have some ad networks, Amazon affiliates has always been really good to me because as I've canned, I have discovered what products work best for canning. And it's not always the things that are necessarily marketed as a canning tool. And so when I share those things and I can link to them, people get excited to hear sort of my, you know, canning hack and they go and buy those things. And so that has been useful. And then the classes have been a huge part of my income, particularly in the summer months. I tallied it up recently and between May and December of this year, I have... 55 classes or demos on my calendar wow. and I and I haven't finished booking myself for September, October, wow. and November. Wow. So um it gets a little nuts like last week I um I taught a class Monday night. I taught Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. I did an all-day canning workshop on a farm on Saturday and I did a free demo on Sunday. And that in and in between all of those things I'm also uh, writing articles, writing the blog, editing my cookbook. It was it was a hard week because oh. there was just so much to do and not enough time to do it. But I where's mean, your I... YouTube channel? That's the thing I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. no, you'll kill me. People <laughs> do ask me that. But, uh, well, I some just... people – I mean video has been, video has been hard to monetize. YouTube videos, I've heard that from even people would get – you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of views. It's but you're doing things that are sort of well characterized, like writing articles. You know what the fee is, doing classes, having the site, sponsorships, all these things. You know the dollar value. YouTube, you could have the most popular food YouTube thing, and you might make a few hundred dollars a week from it. If you know this, it's not as clear a path. And some people have cracked that code, but you're you're uh, down the path that's I think better understood for where the money comes from to make a living. Yeah, and I would love to do video. And I mean, what's crazy is that uh, way back in the day, I started out this whole food media thing doing an online cooking show. Like that's how I really got in this. My husband Scott and I used to make this online cooking show called Fork You and we did it. We started in, oh, oh God, yeah. 2006 before anybody was online doing you know food video. And now, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people doing it, but really it just – we never made any money at it and – it was so time consuming. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, Scott was the one who did the video editing and I don't know how to do it. And so he's been writing books and doing his stuff and his job is demanding. And so 
I can't say, hey, by the way, will you uh, shoot a cooking video for me and edit it <laughs> for free? You know? And and to be perfectly honest, too, I I see the value in it, but I also think that it I don't know, it might take away from my classes, the live teaching I do. I am talking with some people about the possibility of doing an online course and I'm going to teach in October a live streaming Canon class to see how that will work. But there are only so many hours in the day and you have to choose what you do and video has not been the top priority for a million reasons. This is the the entrepreneur's dilemma, especially the sole proprietor, such, yeah. such as myself. Even with all the ventures I have, I'm you know I've got people I hire in for things, but it's essentially me at the center of uh, the different ventures, putting in however many I don't know how many hours are there in a week. I guess we could figure that out because uh, you and I probably both exceed the number of hours that are actually available, even though we do it. And that, it's like you reach a point where how do you hire another person? You know, in your situation. Could you – you have to make so much more money yeah. to then have the time to hire and train someone and hope that they do all the stuff that you want to offload in order to – then you have to keep feeding that mouth too. So the scale jumping from what you're doing to a company with multiple people suddenly – you know, and that's clearly not what you want to do. You have a great scale of what you're, what you're doing now. Yeah. It, I mean and I am slowly – but surely getting a little bit of help with things. Like I had an intern last spring for the spring semester. The university where I went to grad school is here in the Philadelphia area. And so I still have some contacts there and they hooked me up with an intern who was an English major and wanted to learn about food writing and doing this whole making a living as a freelancer thing. And so it was great, but I'm hesitant to do it again because right when you get an intern up to speed and they're finally useful, that's the moment when they leave. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> that's when, but that's yeah. Th- if they become invaluable, then you hope you can have the money to hire them. I've spent, I think, fifteen. Well, my current situation is odd because I have part-time people who work with me on certain things, but they've got their own careers, and I'm buying a little of their time. I've spent mm-hmm. probably fifteen years wishing that I could get to a place where I could have enough money to free up some time and also engage in maybe more lucrative stuff that would take that time. But I can, I've never hired a second person on a, on a regular basis for that reason. You know, I, as we talk about these different ways of making a living, I realized I forgot to ask you one thing earlier is, so you've got a, you know, you've pursued this really wonderfully idiosyncratic and unique thing. You're the, you know, the person, your food in jars, which is, a, yeah. and you've established an identity, you know, I'm sure as we talk about partly by accident, which is wonderful, follow this path. It's become what you're known for. And you came out with a book, uh, uh, Food in Jars, Preserving in Small Batches Year Round. What's great is I know uh, it's Running Press is your publisher. Now, it's very difficult for publishers, even uh, – I don't want to you know, point to poverty at giant publishers. But even large publishers, they have budgets and they make less money on all the books except the blockbusters now than they used to. Author tours that were funded, at least to a few cities, used to be typical – even say 10 years ago. So Running Press is not a large publisher and you wanted a tour. How did you make the tour for Food in Jars work for you so that you could get the word out about the book? Well, my tour was totally self-planned and self-funded. My publisher, the only money they gave me for my tour last summer was they paid for a $91 hotel stay in Chicago because <laughs> they asked me to extend my trip by one night. I didn't have anybody I could stay with. So they covered the hotel night. But I I planned the whole thing. I reached out to everyone I knew. I have been working in this food media world now since 
really actively since the summer of 2007. And so I know a lot of people. And when you start like that, everybody has been moving up too. So all the people that I knew who either worked for me at Slash Food or, you know, had blogs, everybody has, you know, kind of shifted upwards. And so they they have influence. And so I reached out to everybody I knew and I got a lot of help in the promotion. And I, you know, I talked to different cooking class spaces. And so last, so I started planning my book tour. My book came out in May of 2012. I started planning in January and I booked the whole thing. I did a three-week West Coast tour. So I started in Seattle and I worked, I did Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and LA. I did a, you know, an extended weekend in Chicago. I did a bunch of stuff in Boston, um, New York. I've also, I did a lot of things in like smaller cities. So like Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Lancaster City, Pennsylvania, Washington, DC. I found that often the smaller cities are better for turnout because not as many people go to them. Oh yeah. And so um, I sell more books and make more money in smaller cities than I do in the big ones. But also, you know, it's canning. And so if you're closer to farmland, you might be more interested in it. Did you ship books around or were you working with bookstores or, or some combination of that? Some combination of that. I, in Seattle, I had some books that I had shipped. I also worked with the book larder and did an event and they had books. I did an event at the book larder and I did an event. I did a pair of evenings, two evenings of classes at um, the pantry, pantry at Delancey. And they ordered books. And um, in Portland, my parents live in Portland still. So I had books shipped to Portland. I had a, I have a cousin in the Bay Area. So I had books shipped to her. I had books shipped to my best friend from college in LA. So I was shipping, I was drop shipping up and down the oh my East gosh. Coast to my friends and family. Do, we, should, we should reveal to listeners, there's a, it's not exactly a secret, but um, most publishers offer a substantial discount to an author who wants to purchase books to sell them. I mean, some, sometimes you get author's copies for free when a book comes out. I, technical publisher. I worked with would send us 25 copies, which actually got to be a burden over time. It's like, I don't need 25 copies. They couldn't stop it. But uh, yeah. but you can also, I assume Running Press has that deal. So you're paying a substantial fraction off list price. So when you sell at list, you actually can make a fair amount of money per book. Yeah. So I um, I buy it 50% off the cover price. And so I buy my books. They retail for $23. And so I buy them for eleven fifty. And then when I sell them personally, I actually sell them for a little bit less. I sell them for $20. You're so kind. Because, well, and also $20 is an easy amount for people. Mm-hmm. It's a single bill. Most people have a 20 in their wallet if they have any cash. I also have a card reader. You know, I have the square register dealy thing that hooks into my phone so I can take cards, which makes a huge difference. And so I would, you know, I set up at farmer's markets. I did. And I just sat down and did canning demos and sold books. And that can add up. I mean, if you have, you know, 50 or 100 books with you, depending on where you're at, that's that actually turns out to decent money for the time. I mean, you have to shift them around yeah. is the problem. But then, you know, and then when you're working with bookstores, you're going to wind up getting a couple dollars a book as opposed to, you know, seven or $10 a book. But it's still, then they handle all the hassle too. And and they promote you as well. Yeah. You know, I am always happy to work with bookstores and it's, uh, that is actually always my, my top priority because most of the time when I am doing an event, I'm doing a demo. And so there's already the schlepping of the (laughs) the pots and pans and burners and ingredients and equipment. And so if I'm doing that schlepping, the idea of also bringing along 10 to 20 books can be overwhelming. And so if I can partner with someone who is going to handle the book side of things, I'm always happy to do that. But often that's not an option. And so I I bring books. I'm trying to think. I, I did a f- 
we had in Philadelphia, we have this event called the Farm and Food Fest every April. And I did a canning demonstration there this spring and it was great. I filled a hotel ballroom. I had 120 people at oh my, my demo. Gosh. But I had walked there. I could only bring like 18 copies of the book because that was all I could drag along in my little cart. I could have sold 50, but there was just no physical way for me to get them. And then that's also a huge investment for me to have 50 copies of my book on hand. That's one of the things where uh, cookbooks are still a category where people want the physical book because they want to prop it up in their kitchen. And, And no matter how many iPad magnetic refrigerator mounts there are, that's still, I think, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, I sit there with my iPhone and squint and, and zoom, but if, I think that most of the books we bought in the last few years, both the library or ebooks have been cookbooks because with my, uh, uh, refreshed lease on life, I've got the Mediterranean cookbook and we got another one and you, know, you prop it up and you page through it and you need to have that random access. I want to be able to instantly see two pages in front of me where I've bookmarked it. I've stuck things in it. So there still seems to be a very strong, idea of having that physical book. You can't just sell e- – I mean, you can sell ebooks, I'm sure, but that's not a substitute for the people coming to your demo. Yeah. And people, you know, and then if they, you know, if there's someone who reads my blog, you know, they they want to meet me and have me sign their book and they want the physical copy. And that that's great for me. I don't – I love yeah, that. You want to sign – yeah, the sign the book thing. They want to have an experience, which is wonderful. Yeah. Well, I should ask you about your – so you're in the middle. So you've got this uh, – you're full of jars right now. You're canning classes. I'm looking at your summer schedule as it goes into fall on your website at foodinjars.com. We'll be in the show notes. And <laughs> you've got a very active next few months. But you are also writing this new book that's about very small batches. It's Preserving by the Pint. Do you mm-hmm. already have – that's coming out next year. Yeah. Do you already have a plan? Are you going to go back and do this this tour, uh, self-run tour again? Um. I hope so. I hope to. mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, to my mind, it's the best way to sell books, get people engaged with what I'm doing and just get people excited about it. The other thing with canning is that it's one of those things that people feel more comfortable with it when they've seen someone do it. And so it is in my best interest to do canning demos for as many people as I possibly physically, humanly can. Because then people are more engaged. And honestly, whether that translates into a book sale or not, you know, I have this teaching mission. You know, a long time ago, I made this choice that I was not going to be someone who made preserves and sold them. I was going to be someone who taught people how to do it for themselves. And so that teaching mission is a big part of what drives me because I want to get people feeling confident and comfortable and feeling like they can do this. And so, you know, the books give me this opportunity to get in front of people. And so that's a big part of what I'm trying to do. And so each time a book comes out, you have this little moment of sort of illumination where the spotlight is on you. And so I feel sort of like it is my responsibility to capitalize on that moment as much as possible and get out there and, you know, get in front of people. And so I will do it again this summer. I meant to make this summer sort of a quieter summer and it didn't work out. (laughs) So um, I'm going to need some downtime in January and February. And I, I actually kind of have – I'm working on other book proposals. So um, I'm something of a – apparently a glutton for insanity. But I'm going to – I'm hopefully you know, going to have – keep on this cycle of hopefully a, a book every two years. But yeah. In the cookbook world, that's more common, isn't it? It seems like there's some yeah. people put up massive books, but you want to have a – your books will not go out of style. My books won't go out of style and my goal is accessibility above all else. You know, some people write these sort of massive everything they know about canning in one book kind of books. And 
that's not my style. I'm not a perfectionist. Not to say that my books are imperfect, but I'm not someone who feels like I need to get it all under one roof. I, I'm really comfortable with this, the idea of evolution. So, you know, my kind of my style and practice, like this, the tone is there, the same tone is in, you know, it carries through from book one to book two, but sort of the practice has evolved. And for book three, um, I hope for it to, you know, continue to evolve as my life and my eating habits evolve. And so that's really kind of fun to represent that in a book. I, I always think of a book as sort of a cookbook as a snapshot in time. And you have to be okay with the fact that things change and that your books change with them. This is uh, when people can follow along at Food yeah. and Jars as you do this exploration, too. Well, I'm going to go get some uh, olives, tuna fish, and dried fruit, I think. <laughs> and <laughs> it'll be a perfect meal after this. And thank you so much for talking about your work. This has just been great. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really fun. If you'll be in Portland, Oregon on Wednesday, September 18th, 2013, The New Disruptors and The Magazine are having a small shindig with some live interviews, drinks, and mingling. Visit newdisrupt.org slash pdx2013 for details and a link to RSVP a yes or a maybe, or email us at show at newdisrupt.org. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask that you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. 